Hello everyone, welcome to Cracking Addiction. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong and once again we've got Dr. Laura Petrachek with us. Laura, I thought we'd continue our discussion on the 12 steps by looking at the second step. Can you tell me what that second step is? Yes. The second step, Fergal, is came to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. Now, there's a lot in there, isn't there? Yeah. Step two is the one that gives us hope. That's actually how I, that's actually how I memorize the steps. I have key words and, you know, my, my word for step two is hope. But, I, you know, when I hear you say that, I, I, I hear three statements. I hear came to believe, belief in a power greater than myself and the restoration of sanity. So let, let's talk about each of those in turn. So came to believe, what does that mean in the context of recovery? So came to believe is three words, came, came to, came to believe. And the first word came talks means attending meetings. So we're attending meetings, we're coming, you know, we're attending. And then came to means we're waking up, you know, the cobwebs are coming out of our mind um, where our body is detoxing off all the chemicals, the alcohol. So we're starting to have more, a clearer mind. And then came to believe is just that, you know, after attending a lot of meetings, after being sober for a while, um, then we're coming to believe in a power greater than ourselves. And that power could be the group of drunks, G-O-D, or the great outdoors, G-O-D, or it really could be anything or anybody. It doesn't have to be a deity or a god or any sort of religious figure, because unfortunately that that, uh, premise keeps a lot of people away from getting recovery, which is uh, a shame. Yeah, so there's a lot in there. So came, I mean, I I say to people that going to a 12-step program or going to a peer support program is like going to the gym. You can go to the gym five days a week and you can have a latte, have a salad followed by a sticky bun and you know maybe put some sweat clothes on and walk around and say hello and then go to the steam room and the sauna. And you, you can go to the gym and just not do the work. And it's the same with the 12-step program. It's not For me, it's not just about going or, or coming to a, yeah. a, a, a meeting. It's also about actually working at that meeting. And I suppose that, that really can be thought of as coming to, isn't it? You know, you, you, you've got to come to the realize that you've got, you've got to come to, you've got to wake up to this idea that you have to engage. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a very good point. Sometimes in the rooms, I hear the phrase, um, the steps worked me, and I don't agree with that. The steps don't work mm-hmm. you. You have to work the steps, you know. Right. So that, to me, is a uh, cognitive distortion, as it were. Mm. Like, like you stated, mm. we need to do the work. You can't just show up. And some people do for years, and I've heard them talk later. They just showed up and then left. They didn't get a sponsor. They didn't do any of the step work. They didn't do any of the work. 
and they didn't really get a lot out of it. Like you were talking about the analogy of the gym. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, we have to do the work. The, the other statement that I've heard is that if you go to enough meetings, if you come to enough meetings, eventually you will hear what you need to hear. I think that's true for a lot of people. For me, a lot of what I needed to hear was more out of therapy. In therapy sessions, I feel like I got more of what I quote unquote needed to hear in therapy than in 12 step, although there are things I've heard in 12 steps. But um, so I think it's both places, not just 12 steps. And if we move on to this belief in a power greater than yourself, you're absolutely right. You know, there, there, there is this connotation or this religious connotation in the belief in the higher power, which for some people can be off-putting. But I, I, I liken it to an accountability to something or someone other than yourself. Because I think accountability is one of the key the key uh, things that, that will continue to make you get up in the morning and follow your journey of recovery. I like that idea. It does make us accountable. Mm. Know that it's not, and it's also kind of ties back to, I mean, something I've heard in the room for years and I do agree with is that you don't have to do this alone. And I really don't mm. think you could do it alone. And that's why yeah. a higher power is where we're yeah. accountable as, long yeah. as, as well as to the group and our sponsor and to our families, ourselves. I had the story of a patient who had a bottle of HP sauce at the bottom of their bed and HP was their higher power. So it really, it really doesn't actually have to be anything based on a, on the belief of, in any God, according to any major religion. But then again, there are people that do have a faith. There are people that do have a faith, and they do value this concept of God. It's our own personal choice. I think it's unfortunate, or you know, maybe because it was written 80 years ago. The steps really refer to a Christian white male God. Um, and I know people who are Jewish or other come from other religions that that is really off-putting. Like they're saying, this is, this is so Christian. It, it's just a turnoff to me. So, but it doesn't have to be the power grader could be the HP sauce. It could be the HP printer. It could be, <laughs> it could be a doorknob. It could be whatever you want it to be, you know, um, yeah. or whoever you want it to be. So, uh, but, it, you know, and then there's um, a lot of meetings for agnostics. It could also yeah. be you don't believe in a higher power at all, and that's okay. You could still get sober and stay sober. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a deal breaker. Yeah, yeah. but it's not about, you know, it's, it's about accountability, isn't it? It's about, we've said in a previous episode that it takes a village to uh, engage in recovery. And really, it's about acknowledging that it is. It does take a village. It does take. You know, you cannot do it on yourself. There and you know, there are no lone rangers in recovery. Well, there are, but I don't think they 
make a lot of traction or a lot of progress. I mean, there are people mm. that quote unquote, put the plug in the jug and call it a day. Or I even have some clients who said, I don't need AA, I'm just going to stop drinking. And, you know, yes, indeed, they've stopped drinking, but I've, you know, kind of showed them or given them feedback that not a lot else has changed. So just not drinking is just really the half first half of the first step. You know, it doesn't mm. refer to the rest of the 11 steps. So a lot of people think that is it's a misconception that, oh, okay, I just don't drink. And it's okay. No, there's the program, the 12 steps are for a reason, for change. You know, just not drinking. Most people don't change. And actually a lot of people get worse in terms of irritability, discontent, uh, kind of a sour mood. Yeah. So... Is that the concept of the dry drunk? Yes, I would say that's the concept of the dry drunk. Exactly. You know, you're just hanging on by your fingernails and um, you're not drinking, but it's like you're drinking because your behavior hasn't changed. So let's move on to the next, the last third of the statement, the restoration of sanity. What do you think about that statement? I used to have a lot of trouble with this statement in that uh, also being someone who has a mental health issue, you know, I'm also have bipolar disorder. So when I read the last part of the statement, I'm like, Oh, well, okay. Um, people already have this stigma that if you have mental illness, you're insane. I mean, at least back in the day when I got clean and sober, um, so I, I see sanity as soundness of mind. I reframe that word to work for me and to fit better because sanity, I mean, cause it alludes like it states that we were insane, we were drinking and, but you know, if you have mental health issues and stone cold sober, there could be some insanity type behavior there too. So again, but I don't like the, um, the judgmentalness of it. And therefore I like the phrase, uh, restore us to soundness of mind. I, I can, I can look at that phrase in a number of ways. One way that I, I look at that is the, this concept of men's sana in sano corpore. So really it's all about health. So a healthy mind and a healthy body. So the restoration of health, you could you could you could look at the restoration of sanity as as the restoration of health. Which and you know when you consider the the physical health effects of and then the hazardous effects of uh, alcohol, you can, there's a whole raft of of health benefits in, in abstinence, and that includes the reduction in the risk of cancer, liver disease, heart disease, also reduction in mental health issues. Well, I was good. that was the second point. Another way of looking at it is to actually say that this alludes to this pervasive concept of dual diagnosis, where you know we do know that people with uh, a substance use disorder are very commonly also suffering from a, a mental health disorder. So it's an acknowledgement of that dual diagnosis. Exactly. 
And yes, a lot of people in the rooms also have uh, suffer from dual diagnosis. So did you find this statement when you were starting out in your journey, this, this concept of the restoration of sanity, did you find that difficult to engage with? I just, you know, honestly didn't relate to it. I think is the way I kind of went around it because I didn't, you know, I didn't, again, I thought that uh, precludes that means I was insane and I didn't mm. really, you know, buy that. And I mean, I was very young when I got clean and sober. So a lot of my drinking, you know, there were a lot of yets, quote unquote, and I didn't experience those. So when I'd hear in the rooms, a lot of insane behavior at that, ah, definitely not me. Um, so I, you know, had to couch it in a different way that I could more relate to. And I remember hearing in the rooms once someone said soundness of mind. And I thought, oh, that's something I could hang on to. That's something I relate to. Tell us about the yets. Well, the yets, um, you know, getting a DUI, um, losing your home, your job, and your family. I mean, I was 17, so I didn't have any of those yet when I came in the rooms. Um, well, I did have a job, actually, but I, and I didn't lose it. <laughs> so um, that, you know, was kind of a way I would show, oh, I don't have a problem, or I was a straight-A student. So, oh, drinking hasn't ever really affected me because I'm still getting straight A's. Um, so that was a way that fed my denial. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so when I hear you say yet, I actually hear, you know, denial. Yes. And, and you know, uh, I have a, I'm reminded of a number of patients that say to me, oh, look, you know, I'm not like them. I don't really have that much of a problem. I don't need to attend a, a peer support group. Right. And there's another barrier that, that I hear is that my suffering is unique. No one else will understand my journey, my pain, my suffering. So therefore, there's no point in going to disclose my suffering to a bunch of people that won't comprehend it. And that, that, that can be a significant barrier. And I find it quite challenging to try and help people when they're in that mindset. What would you say to that? Yes, I think that is common. A lot of people feel they can't relate to the other people in the rooms hmm. and or that their story is different from the other people's story, which it is. Yeah. Um, hmm. So I suggest to someone, you know, instead of comparing stories, uh, try to instead identify with the feelings. What are the feelings that the person's that's sharing? You know, despair, hope, uh, sadness, you know, what, what are those feelings that they're talking about? Can you relate to identify with? So, because it's a way to keep separate, right? When someone says, well, you know, the phrase is terminal uniqueness. I'm, <laughs> yes. you know, I like that terminal uniqueness. It's a phrase in the rooms. And when we get in that space that prevents us from, being or joining the group because my story is so different from yours. So I don't know how you could help me. 
Um, But if you can identify instead of comparing, that's what I keep suggesting to people. Or uh, for folks that have, you know, more mental health issues or mental health issues, I also suggest trying some dual diagnosis groups. But I suggest Mm -hmm. I want you to try at least six different meetings before you say, Dr. P, none of them. They're all a no. I want you to try at least six and six different ones, you know. I really like this idea that that instead of uh, focusing on the differences in your story, focusing focus on the commonality of the feelings, because it reminds me of the fact that every organ system in the body only has a limited number of ways of expressing pathology. And I suppose if we consider the organ of our soul that makes us suffer emotional uh, uh, you know, pain, you know, there's only so there's there there are only a limited number of ways that we can express or feel emotional pain. And yet we have a myriad of unique journeys towards that expression. So it really does actually narrow the focus down away from our individual uniqueness towards this commonality, this common bond of, of, of suffering, doesn't it? Yes, it does. You know? I really like that. Yeah. yeah, thanks. Yeah. And it also yeah. helps then us feel less alone, you know, and gives people or helps people feel more hope. Yeah. 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 So do you think that this concept has has stood the test of time and re, and resisted the charge of being stigmatizing I think it has resisted the test of time but mm-hmm. I do talk in my book about my own story and how I struggle with this uh, last third of the um, second step how mm-hmm. I came to view it differently to help me work the step in its entirety yeah, and and it's okay to to rework the step, the, the the literal words of the step, and to actually adapt the the words to serve you, isn't it? It's it's not it's not a religious text. Exactly, it's not sacrosanct. No, although a lot of people in the room see the text as sacrosanct, and that is, of course, I feel an issue because it it. Uh, it leaves people at the door that would maybe otherwise come in, which I think is a shame. Yeah. 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 Uh, that, that opens the, the door to the, uh, the internecine conflict between all, within and between all religions, doesn't it? Yes. This idea that, that one particular interpretation is the inherent truth. I don't believe that the 12 steps as it was written in the 1930s is the entire manifestation of the inherent truth of recovery. Yes, I agree, because we have 80 years since then and 80 years of research and otherwise to build upon that, those 12 steps Mm. or to flesh them out more. Yeah. Mm. All right, Laura, we've run out of time. But I want to thank you for your expertise today, and I look forward to discussing with you again shortly the third step in the 12 steps. Many thanks. That's all for today, folks. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and this has been Cracking Addiction.